herein lies some of the challenge for agriculture going forward. Welcome to Extension Out Loud, Episode 4. We're going to talk about dairy today. I'm Paul Treadwell. And I'm Katie Bailden. Hi, Katie. Hi. So in this episode, we talked to Dr. Andrew Novakovic of the Dyson School about some of the intricacies of dairy, dairy production, and dairy farming here in New York State. Right. Title I of the Farm Bill focuses on commodities, and in New York State, milk is the top product, and dairy products in general are one of the largest agricultural industries. So it makes sense that our episode focuses a lot on dairies and how they work in New York State and how the Farm Bill impacts their operations. I'm Andrew Novakovich. I'm a professor in the Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management and work in the area of agricultural economics, particularly focusing on dairy markets and dairy policy. Andrew, thank you very much. It's great to have you here with us. Dairy is, is a topic that's popping up in the news a lot lately. And we've read some articles in the past month or two that say dairy is in crisis. Is that a true assessment of, of the situation for dairy in New York State? Uh, yes, I think it, it very much is. And certainly there's all kinds of testimony from producers, not only in New York, but across the country, as to how difficult not only it is today, but really the last three years. One of the things that I've said to describe the recent environment is we've had previous periods that have been much more uh, deep and sharp in terms of how they've cut into dairy profits, but this one is really the long scrape as opposed to the deep cut. We've had three years of pretty much unremitting below average returns that have gone beyond almost anybody's ability to plan for and endure. Is this a crisis for all dairy farmers or is this mostly impacting smaller producers? Certainly there are farmers that are doing um, better and other farmers that are not doing as well. That's always the case and that can be for a variety of reasons. Sometimes a farm gets caught in the middle of an investment cycle where they're pretty heavily in debt. And in those times, it's tougher when you have below average profitability or or no profitability. And that's not a function of size, and it's not necessarily a function of age. It is usually the case that a smaller scale farm operated by a family that's uh, a little older and maybe approaching retirement uh, has a got, got a lot more resilience because they're not carrying a lot of debt and, and uh, they're not trying really perhaps even trying to invest in the next generation because they're thinking more about retiring. So in some ways it's more of a kind of life cycle uh, issue than it is uh, particular structure of a farm or so on. We certainly generally observe that larger scale farms tend to have lower variable costs of production, but there are smaller scale farms that certainly are very competitive and and may have an attractive debt structure that allows them to continue. Uh, I guarantee you there isn't a farmer in the United States 
that wouldn't agree that prices have been too low for too long? I guess to sum up that answer, it kind of it depends on the farm and where they are situated in the market, whether they've been in for a long time, they're a new farmer, not so much size. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Uh, You know, if we did a tally and how many farms are below some certain threshold, uh, I wouldn't be terribly surprised to find that there's a lot of small farms that that are feeling very much on the edge. But the fact of the matter is we have a lot of small farms, and so they outnumber the big farms quite considerably anyway. And may feel like they have fewer options, fewer alternatives, fewer resources to draw on uh, when they are going through more difficult times. Let me be devil's advocate here for a minute. We live in a free market economy. Dairy is failing. Why not just let things fail? Yeah, well, that's certainly an argument that some people offer. And, you know, there is no economic theory that would say this is exactly why that statement is wrong or this statement, that statement is correct. So it becomes a blend of a little bit of economics, a little bit of social policy, a little bit of politics. Historically, agriculture was considered a fundamental attribute of rural areas. And if you wanted rural areas to prosper, you needed agriculture to prosper. There are Congress people that represent rural districts. They are a minority of the U.S. Congress. Every senator, including the two senators from the state of New York, are aware that some of the people that put them in office come from rural areas. And Senator Schumer, whose whose home base is metropolitan New York, Senator Gillibrand, who did not come from a farm area, both very genuine and sincerely want to do good things for agriculture. And they see that as benefiting upstate New York, as benefiting rural areas. So that's part of the logic. Politically, we think it makes sense. I think there's also the social dimension of this that says, gosh, farmers, hardworking, salt of the earth, those poor guys hardly make any money, we ought to help them out. That in some sense, they're kind of a disadvantaged population that deserves society's help. There are a lot of people who would challenge that characterization of modern agriculture, even though they might agree that absolutely that was uh, a good description in the 1930s or 40s. But it's whether that balance has shifted, there certainly are farmers today that you would say kind of fit that description. And so sort of the social uh, justification is still a part of the equation. And I think the last one that agriculture certainly would put forward is, uh, duh, we're talking about food, and pretty important. And wouldn't you like to have a system that took volatility out of food production, that made it a little easier to produce food, made it a little bit cheaper to produce food, took some of the risk out? Uh, I think at the end of the day, that's probably the most potent argument in favor of some kind of economic intervention. When we're talking about the price of milk, there's the producer, which is the farmers, there's the processors, and then there's the kind of the market. Where in that process is the cost too low, and, and how does that happen? Well, so of course it's, it's basic economics that if you're selling something and prices are low, that's bad. If you're buying something and prices are low, that's good. I think even though that 
there's you know some simple truth to that. A lot of processors, the people that are buying milk at these relatively low prices, have no small amount of anxiety in that they're concerned about the long-run stability of their milk supply. The dairy industry is not one that sees a lot of fluctuation in sales over the from year to year. Certainly it makes a difference what time of year it is, but next year's sales and the sales for the year after don't tend to fluctuate a lot. They tend to be on a pretty predictable trend. And so when a processor marketer is thinking about the price of milk, it's not just simply, oh good, I don't have to pay so much now, but it's also a question of, am I going to continue to have milk available near my plant to fuel what I think would be likely projected growth in my sales. And so that becomes uh, certainly of some concern. Food marketers, people farther down the supply chain, will often say that they like a certain amount of price volatility because when prices move, they see marketing opportunities to say, oh, look, it's a special deal, the best ever. And, and when the prices are high, maybe they get to make some, quietly make some profits. but. There can be a limit to how high or low prices move before it begins to be disruptive, especially for a dairy product like beverage milk. Beverage milk is, is a popular product for families with young children. Uh, these are often families that have lots of requirements on their income. Uh, they're you know, buying washing machines and hoping to get a new house and needing to replace the car. And so uh, the cost of food, particularly a staple food item like milk, can become uh, a concern. And retailers don't like a situation where prices really spike and then they really fall. They'd much rather see more stable prices, kind of along the theme of uh, everyday good value for you. And so uh, these, these price movements, although in some simple sense may seem like uh, a good deal for the seller at some times and the buyer at other times, both sides get nervous when there's a lack of stability and uh, something that either threatens future production or conversely threatens future sales. How does the farm bill impact dairy farmers and the price of milk historically and then today? So there are a couple of key elements to what we might call dairy policy. One of them is federal milk marketing orders, which is a, a complex type of price regulation that very definitely uh, impacts uh, New York milk producers. That system covers about eight out of every 10 pounds of milk produced in the United States. So very pervasive. That, however, is not a farm bill program. That's a program that's authorized under some different legislation, and it keeps chugging along until somebody decides they want to change it. The major farm bill program is now uh, what's called direct payments or direct transfers to farmers, where farmers literally get a check from the U.S. Treasury under certain conditions. There have been different forms of that, and that particular program has been very much cussed and discussed, as we say, uh, since it was inaugurated in 2014. Uh, the current version of that, Margin Protection Program for Dairy, was a program designed to provide cash payments to dairy farmers 
when the gap between the price of milk and the cost of feed became narrow, when margins were low. Um, there's a, more to the cost of milk production than the price of feed, but feed generally represents about 50% of the variable cost of production. And so for most dairy farmers, if, if that relationship is bad, there's a pretty good chance uh, your profitability uh, in general is bad, that other things haven't gotten so good to make up for it. That program seemed like a good idea at the time, seemed to be sensible in its structure, but it's proved to be a, a big disappointment for dairy farmers. Uh, the program basically said, for very little money, 100 bucks, you can sign up for the program, and we will provide what was described as catastrophic insurance. If things just go abysmally bad, we'll provide you a supplemental payment. However, if you would like to insure yourself against something less bad mm -hmm. than catastrophic, you can do that, but you'll have to pay. And just like auto insurance or other kinds of insurance, the more coverage you want or the lower deductible you want, if you will, the more you have to pay. And as it turned out over the last three years, farmers paid 10 times as much money in premiums as they got back in benefits. Now, insurance uh, advocates would say, well, you don't buy auto insurance with the hope of getting a payment. You don't buy homeowner's insurance with the hope that your house will burn down. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. And dairy farmers would say, yeah, but my house did burn down and my car did have an accident and you didn't pay me when mm -hmm. I, I think I should have deserved a payment. This year, 2018, some changes were made to MPP Dairy that made it much, much more attractive. In fact, for most farmers in the U.S., you could sign up for the program in the middle of 2018 with 100% certainty that you would get more money back than you paid in. And even under those unusual conditions, only about half of U.S. farmers chose to take this program. Mm -hmm. To me, that's in no small part a measure of just how dissatisfied they mm -hmm. were with this program. The House and the Senate have both crafted changes to MPP dairy, further changes beyond what occurred earlier in 2018. They're not the same change. They kind of point in the same direction. They're going to have to sort that out and decide mm -hmm. what's going to happen. So we'll get a third revision to MPP dairy at some point in time. And it's pretty clear that that revision will make the program more appealing, but it's not entirely clear whether or not farmers are, have lost interest in this program or whether they'll come back. Uh, and there are also some other, other programs that have been developed. Uh, one that was recently announced is called Revenue Protection for Dairy, or RP Dairy. That was uh, just announced. Its contracts are now becoming available. And that is a program that is also not a farm bill program. It comes under existing law. It's like crop insurance. Mm -hmm. And many people think that that will be actually quite appealing to a lot of producers. And of course, we also now have the Trump administration sort of bailout on the tariff uh, program that has promised uh, farmers uh, upwards of $12 billion in various different kind of programmatic payments. That was just announced now, and it looks like dairy farmers will get about a half a million dollars in direct cash payments uh, very soon as a result of that program.
So we know there's uncertainty around what, what's coming up in the farm bill. They have to reconcile the two versions. But what is the best ideal outcome? Like who would that impact most? Well, you know, I think most legislation tends to be incremental. It's fairly rare that you see legislation passed that just dramatically changes something. And certainly farm bill legislation is of that type. And over the course of 50 years, you know, we end programs and we start something new. But those are programs and the basic policies that give meaning to those programs doesn't really change that much. We ask ourselves questions like, how much can we afford? Uh, We ask questions like, how much help is needed? Uh, We ask questions like, well, hey, the concern now is about growing export markets. What can we do to kind of help with that? Or there are concerns about animal welfare or labor or environment. And, you know, how can we bring that into uh, our thinking about working with farmers? So we have these textures, but the programs tend to operate more in terms of marginal change. And if you look at the proposals on the table today for the Farm Bill, Absolutely, uh, that is the situation. You know, herein lies some of the challenge for agriculture going forward because these bills are described as being about agriculture or it's the farm bill, but actually it's only about the part of agriculture or the part of farming that Congress assigns to a certain committee. This is called jurisdiction. So... It's kind of like going to your local county board and saying, I don't like these helicopters flying overhead all the time. It's too noisy. And they go, well, I'm sorry. I don't have any control over airspace. That's not my thing. That's that's a state's jurisdiction. Well, likewise, the ag committees in the Congress only have a certain number of levers that they have the authority to push. And other committees are responsible for other levers. So when you think about things like farm labor, hugely controversial issue, but also an issue where there's broad agreement we should do something. Don't necessarily agree on all the details of what we should do, but nobody is debating that it's an issue, and everybody agrees it should be solved. But the people who are closest to agriculture on the ag committees have no authority on labor issues. And the people that have authority on labor issues don't know that much about agriculture. Mm -hmm. And so it makes it hard from a legislative process point of view to figure out how to move forward. Well, thank you for that. It really does clarify some of the intricacies of how the bill moves around. One thing that you raised in our sort of casual thing before we started asking questions again was the growth of small farms, the, the involvement of younger people in farming and organic. Is there good support in the farm bill or in the proposed farm bill for bringing new farmers into the process? Because we know there's been a steady decline of older farmers selling off their farms. So does the farm bill help encourage that process? Do they support younger farmers? There was a, a, a very significant effort in the previous administration under Secretary Vilsack and President Obama to bring new people into agriculture. This was young people, it was minorities, it was women, it was veterans. These were, these were uh, areas that, that uh, Tom Vilsack felt very passionately about. The philosophy of Secretary Purdue and President Trump 
are a little more free market, a little bit more, let's reduce regulation, let's make it you know, easier to get into from the standpoint of rules. Uh, Secretary Purdue certainly has not abandoned programs for young farmers and, and that sort of thing, but the way to get at that has, has definitely been changed. And of course, there are state programs that try to focus on those sorts of things as well. Nevertheless, there are concerns about who's going to be producing food 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. My observation is that there is a lot more going on than people are aware of and that stories about the average age of farmers is pretty pretty misleading. It's kind of like saying, what's the average age of the head of your household and inferring that that tells you something about the distribution of age in the household. So you have large-scale farms that are headed often by the oldest man in the family. And you say that's the age of farm owners. Well, shoot, that guy might be the chairman of the board, but there's all kinds of folks that are involved in running that farm. And it's usually at least a two or three generational activity. So the idea that there's nobody around to take over, I think, is is a little exaggerated. The flip side of that coin is it's hard to get into agriculture if you don't have a sponsor. And that sponsor is likely to be an older person who's thinking about retirement, would love to pass the business off to a younger person. But now it's not so likely to be a child or a grandchild. It's more likely to be a young person that you brought on the farm as a milker when they were 19 years old and they were a hard worker and they were bright and then you had them do this and then you had that and then they went and they did some more and the next thing you know they're investing in the farm and you say that's the person that I see taking over my farm. So there's intergenerational transfer but it happens in a different way than the you know children inheriting sort of thing. And there's more of that going on than I think uh, we're aware of. This episode of Extension Out Loud was produced and edited by Paul Treadwell with help and advice from Katie Belden and R.J. Anderson. Any opinions or values expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the position of Cornell Cooperative Extension. Thank you.